You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. You know, it is a new year, and maybe you're a New Year's resolution person, maybe you're not, but either way, if you had to guess as to what, what was the most common New Year's resolution for 2018 or the number one New Year's resolution for 2018, what do you think it would be? Someone said lose weight. Yeah, I'm there. But that has been the number one New Year's resolution up till last year and this year. Up till last year and this year, it has been, yeah, lose, lose some weight. But that has been superseded by another New Year's resolution. And I'd like to read this to you. This article just came out in USA Today this last week. The most popular New Year's resolution for 2018 isn't about our waistlines. At the end of each year, we take stock of who we are. We think about our diets, our exercise routines. We wonder if we're frugal enough, ambitious enough, whether we've read enough books or spent enough of our time wisely. We question if we're in the right job or even in the right relationship. We try to imagine how we can better enjoy our lives. But in the last couple of years particularly, many are thinking less about waistlines and paychecks and more about how the things we do matter in a wider world around us. A new Marist poll found that being a better person or being a good person is the most popular New Year's Eve resolution for 2018. Three cheers for humanity. But it begs the question, what does being a good person actually look like? Social psychologists, ethicists, and religious leaders say the short answer is someone who is good to everybody, to people in their group, family and friends, and especially those outside of it, strangers, those of a different race or ethnicity. If you want to take stock of how good you actually are, experts say start not by making a list of all the good things you know you've done this year, but of all the bad things you've likely done. In other words, take a hard look at yourself. What do you think about that? What would the Bible say about that? What would Jesus say about that? What would our passage today say about that? Because it will say something about that. If you've been journeying with us, we've been going through the, this amazing book of the Gospel of Luke, and now we come to Luke chapter 3. And just for a little background here, What's happening is really the fulfillment of God's plan. For those of you who know your Bibles, you remember that the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, in the final verses of Malachi, it talks about that Elijah will come to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their, their children of their, the, the hearts of the children to their fathers and to turn God's people back to him, to turn their hearts towards him. And now 400 years later, that is becoming fulfilled in John the Baptist. He comes not as Elijah, but in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he has an incredibly powerful message of repentance, calling people back to God. And with this passage we'll look at today, we're gonna see 
some biblical perspective on this idea of being a good person. What is that really all about? And so if you have a Bible, please open or turn your tablet or phone on, however you get there, to Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. I'll read this to you, and then we'll circle back around to it. So here we go. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Traconite, Traconitus, say that quickly three times, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went out into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, and this is Isaiah chapter 40, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. So John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, but we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So there is a lot for us to circle back around to there. But let's look at this excellent statement right out of how to win friends and influence people. What does John say to the crowd? You brood of vipers. Now, another way of saying that is you snakes. So let's give this a test drive. You go home today and you say to someone in your family or your spouse or a friend, you snake. Compliment or not? Not right? I have many relatives on my dad's side of the family who are dryland wheat farmers, and they, I remember previous years talking to them, and when, when a field gets burned, do you know who all of a sudden appears out of nowhere fleeing for their lives? All sorts of critters, including snakes, up out of their holes and away they go because they're trying to get away from the fire, and that is the imagery that John is very deliberately 
drawing here is this, is this fire of God's, God's rightful judgment. But you know what's fascinating? To me, is who is in this crowd? Who is this crowd? Religious people, many of them. Moral people. Or to say it another way, good people. And what does John say to them? He refers back to Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish nation. We go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Abraham is a pagan, probably worshipped multiple false gods. And the one true God, Yahweh, comes to him and makes a covenant with him, makes a promise to him that someday he will make him into a great nation. He will give him a land. And eventually all peoples, all nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And Abraham responds. It says he believed the Lord and, he credit, and, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. So what's the point here? So was Abraham saved because of his ethnicity or because of how he chose to believe by trusting and obeying what God said? Well, the latter, by believing, by trusting and obeying what God said. So literally what John is saying to this crowd here is your ethnicity does not make you right with God. Just because you're religious, just because you're a Jew, an ethnic Jew does not make you right with God. That's not what made Abraham right with God. It's not what makes you right with God. And so this, this it feels like harsh, harsh, but very truthful language. And basically what John is saying is answering our question, is good, good enough? At least in how our culture defines good. And the answer is no. And this is why. Being good, being moral, even being religious is not a deep enough change. You see, whether it's empty religion or whether it's morality and trying to be a good person, it's the same outcome. Those are attempts to change from the outside in. Empty religion says, do this, don't do that, follow this read, rule, follow this code, what have you. And this is what's gonna make you right with God. That changes behavior, but that doesn't truly change the core of who you are and who I am. It's not a deep enough change. The good news of Jesus Christ is that God wants to change you not from the outside in, but from the inside out by changing the core of what makes me, me, and what makes you, you. Now we're talking motives, and motives always matter to God. I mean, think about it this way. Is it possible to be a good moral person to do something good and to do it with the wrong motives? Yeah. I mean, how often do we say something to someone expecting something in return. How often do we do something for someone that's good? But sometimes that's motivated by wanting them to do something for us in return. I do something for you, I expect to hear a thank you. I do something nice for you, I expect you to do something nice for me. And that's just a small example of the bigger problem. Motives always matter to God. 
And something that was said that really got my attention some years ago was Billy Graham, of all people, this amazing, godly, consistently godly man, over the course of his life said, I don't think I've ever done anything with a truly pure motive. And that's exactly the issue. There is a brokenness that pervades me and that pervades and permeates you, not just what you do, what you think, what motivates you, the values you have. We all start out in this same place apart from God. The Bible calls it sin. It goes all the way back to the beginning, to our ancestors, to Adam and Eve. We are sinners by nature. We inherited that from them, but we're also sinners by choice, meaning that left to our own, apart from God, we can be pretty selfish, pretty self-absorbed, pretty self-focused, and, and pretty slick, really. We'll do good things with the wrong motives. We'll look good, but our heart won't be good. And the promise of the gospel is that we don't have to live that way. That God wants to change us from the inside out, not through morality, not through empty religion, but through heart surgery. He wants to give us a new heart, a new core of who we are, and to call forth what he always created us, what he always intended us to be, because we're made in his image. So much of growth in the Christian life isn't about becoming something you're not. It's about becoming who God always intended you to be through his power and work in your life. And it's an amazing message. And that's why it feels like John's being a little harsh here. I guess it is harsh, but it's extremely truthful and it's right on the money. Folks, if you're settling for morality and empty religion, you're settling. And you are not right with God and you're missing out on so much of what God has for you. Because at the end of the day, what morality tries to do, what empty religion tries to do, is it tries to get right with God, it tries to connect with God without Jesus. And the relationship that God offers us through his son, Jesus Christ, is free. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. There's nothing you and I can do to make God love us. He already does. In all of our brokenness, in all of our sin, in all of our selfishness, he still loves us. God is the only relationship, the only person, if you will respond and receive him into your life, in your life, who will always love you unconditionally. The only source of consistent, comprehensive, unbelievable, unparalleled, unconditional love is through God. So stop settling for empty religion. Stop settling for morality is basically what John is saying here. You need to repent. You need to turn away from that. And by the way, that's what repentance is. It is a change of your core. Christianity is the only belief system, the only worldview, the only religion that says God will come live inside of you and in the process of that give you a new heart. He will change you completely from the inside out. No other belief system says that or teaches that. An inside out change, a complete change of your mind and heart. And what it looks like is now this idea of repentance is this idea of turning. That's what the word literally means, to move or to turn. And it means to turn away from your sin and to turn towards Jesus. It, it's very practical and it's very tangible. If, if this is my sin out in front of me and the cross representing Jesus, it means I literally turn away from that in what I think, what I do, what I say, and I turn towards Jesus and I turn my back on sin. What does that look like? It's right here in this passage. It's very practical. The crowd gets it, or at least some of them do, and so they go, well, what do we do? And what does he tell them? 
If you have two tunics, two shirts, two coats, give one away, share, share your food. Tax collectors, the worst version of the IRS you could ever think of, horrendously corrupt, and I'm just teasing about the IRS. We have people here who work for the IRS, wonderful people, but <laughs> be nice to them. Be nice to them, it's in your best interest. See, there's that sin again, wrong motives, right there. Unbelievable, we will not put this one up on the web, okay. <laughs> but tax collectors, what do we do? He tells them what to do, soldiers, Roman soldiers. What do we do? This is what you need to do. Repentance is very, very tangible, very, very practical because it's always sourced in relationship. Repentance is always about relationship. It's always about making things right with God or making things right with other people. And it's a very practical process. This is not necessarily linear, but this is what it looks like, and you don't have to write this down. We're gonna go through this one by one here. But as we prepare to do so, in the back, we have a much more comprehensive write-up about what this tangibly looks like in your relationships. This was developed by us, by, for us, by Gary Brashears, who's one of our preaching team and one of our elders. He developed this many years ago, but it's available there on the back resource counter as, if you want it after the service. But this is what this looks like, conviction. Conviction is the realization, it's the owning of the reality that I'm broken. I, I am a sinner apart from Jesus. And conviction will come to you through a message like this. It will come through you reading the scripture. It will come through community and the people you're in a relationship with. It will come through your own conscience. It will come through the Holy Spirit. But it will come to you and you will realize, yeah, this, this ain't right. But let's take this a step further. Do you have a relationship in your life? Do I? Or relationships that are safe. And they're safe enough where there's someone who loves you who will speak God's truth into your life and yes, point out the sin in your life. Not for the purpose of shaming you, but for calling you to something better. Do you have someone like that in your life? Because that in part is what we're talking about with what it means to be in community. We need that. I need that kind of accountability and, and you do too. So who is that person or persons in your life? Because once you realize, yeah, this, this, this is broken, this is selfish, this is sinful, then the next step is, is confession. It's, it's not just calling it what it is, it's, it's talking about it with God and, and with others. Again, that's one of the reasons why we encourage you to get into a small group here at Grace or to get into one-on-one -on -one or small group discipleship. Because part of confession is, is owning it and apologizing for it. And this has a lot of different looks, too. A good apology is specific. How often do we give these general apologies like, oh, yeah, I really blew it. Well, how did you blow it? I mean, that's, that's pretty easy. Let's talk about what it isn't. Apologizing isn't saying you're sorry because you got caught. Scripture talks about that kind of false apology. It's called worldly sorrow. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7 talks about this. The difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. We see worldly sorrow all the time in our world. A, a public official gets caught doing something and they're really sorry they got caught. They're not really sorry that it happened. 
Or maybe it's the person who says, yeah, I'm sorry, and they genuinely are sorry. They feel bad, but then they turn right around and do it again. Or here's one for you. My daughter and I were having a conflict, one of my daughters, many years ago, and uh, I really wasn't seeing things her way, so I said, you know what, I'm sorry you feel that way. And she said, Daddy, that is not an apology. She was right. And I thought, who's the adult here? You know, she's right. A meaningful apology is specific. And it's to the person. And something that we can do, and I sometimes struggle with that in this in my relationships, is sometimes we apologize too soon. Because there's tension in a relationship and you just want to make things right, so you, know, you quickly say, well, I'm sorry, before really hearing the other person out. A very necessary part of the confession process is hearing the other person's pain or hearing how you offended them or hearing them out before you rush in to apologize. The goal isn't necessarily to just make the relationship right. A real important part is entering into that person's pain and, and owning it. Because then you're truly ready to forgive. And by the way, the reality with forgiveness is it is not a feeling. Forgiveness isn't a feeling. You don't apologize because you feel like it. Because if you've ever truly been wronged, if you've ever truly been hurt, even if you've been betrayed, you may never get to the point where you feel like forgiving someone. Forgiveness is a choice, always. It's a choice. But, but how? How do you forgive someone if you have legitimately been wronged, if you have truly been hurt? How do you do that when you don't feel like it, when it's painful, when it's hard? Well, one of the realities is the gospel itself, the good news of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3 says we are to forgive because we've been forgiven. That's powerful. We talk about this all the time. Living out the gospel is always a response to what God has done for you. Why should you forgive someone? Because God has forgiven you. Why should I forgive someone who wrongs me? Because God has forgiven me. Because you see, repentance isn't about earning God's forgiveness. It's about experiencing it. Which leads really to the next step, and that's, that's reconciliation. This is the restoration of relationship and trust. But it takes two willing parties to do this. And sometimes we blur reconciliation and forgiveness, and they're not the same thing. You can forgive someone without being reconciled to them. If someone's not willing to restore a relationship with you and you've forgiven them, well, there's not really a whole lot you can do about that. In fact, there are some situations where you shouldn't be reconciled because that's an extension of trust. You're in an abusive relationship. You're around someone who's verbally abusive by way of example. You can forgive them, but are you really wise to keep reconciling that relationship and putting yourself in the line of fire again? And once again, this is very murky and this is very gray, and that's why we have to make these kinds of decisions in community with the collective wisdom of God's word, the Holy Spirit, and other like-minded believers to help navigate some of this stuff. But you see where this is, this is going. There are layers to it. And there's also layers to restitution. I mean, that's in this very passage we're looking at. Restitution, in part, is stopping what you're doing. Those of you who are extorting people 
and shaking people down. Soldiers, stop doing that. Those of you who are robbing people, tax collectors, stop doing that. that. That's in part what restitution is. But there's another piece to restitution. Where applicable, where appropriate, where necessary, we are to make amends. I'll give you an example. In our world of social media, how often does someone go off on a rant, a Twitter rant or whatever kind of form that takes on someone and then they realize they were wrong, they realize they hit send when they were angry or whatever that looks like and they say, oh, I'm sorry. And they're out. What about the person who just got shredded by what they said? What about that person's honor? What about that person's reputation? What happens then? Because a piece of this that is distinctly Christian, that is distinct for Jesus' followers, is when it comes to restitution, we are to give blessing. We are to restore honor. We are, as much as possible, as much as it depends on us, to make things right. It's not just enough to apologize. We go the extra mile to make things right. Why? Because isn't that how God loves us? Isn't that how God treats us? And when you begin to live out this reality of reconciliation, it leads to this. This leads to life change in a way that empty religion and morality will never get to. Because this is an ongoing process and it matters how we live. As Jesus followers, we don't make allowances, we don't make excuses, we don't explain away our sin, we own it. And we deal with it. And we seek God's forgiveness and we seek right relationship with God and with one another. It it matters. And if I could just say this, this is an ongoing process and sometimes it's so incremental and sometimes it feels like we're not changing and we do something and we genuinely apologize, we, we repent, we go right back at it again and there are some things that we will do battle like that with until we go to be with Jesus or until he comes back for us and it's so easy to give up in fact there are some of you here I just know this from this a a gathering of this size there are some of you here who you have given up it comes to new year's resolutions it comes to this idea of hope and true life change and in your heart of hearts you go yeah that's not for me and the reality of God's word challenges that once again today Every day is a new day in Jesus Christ. There is always hope. If you have Jesus, you have hope. And yes, things may not change the way you want them to, the timeline that you want them to, the way you want them to, but there's always hope. And you see, we live in a culture that really resists a lot of this. In particular, it resists this idea of community the way we're talking about community and accountability here as a crew. Because we live in a culture that preaches these values of tolerance and diversity and you know those words can be defined in many different ways and absolutely we should be tolerant and diverse in terms of being gracious and accommodating but we should never accommodate or celebrate sin. And we live in a culture that does exactly that. 
And by the way, it says your sexuality, your finances, your time, your resources, your values, your family relationships, all that's your business. That's no one else's business but your own. As long as you're trying to be a good person, that is good enough. And that's not true. And that's not what Jesus' followers are called to. My sexuality, my finances, how I spend my time, my relationships, I am accountable to you as Brothers and sisters in Christ, you should have the right to speak into those things in my life, to encourage me. And yes, when there's brokenness, to call me to account with grace and truth and mercy and love, not to shame me, but to call me to something better. I need that. I want that. And that's the life that we're called to as, as Jesus followers. Because there is a very strong, unmistakable, unavoidable, unmissable warning in this passage. John draws this analogy, and again, in an agrarian culture, everyone would have understood this and got this, but at harvest time with the wheat, the way you separate the wheat from the chaff is you get a pitchfork or whatever, and you would throw it in the air, the wheat would drop to the ground, and the chaff would kind of float away. And chaff looks like wheat, doesn't taste like wheat, but looks like wheat, and it's kind of imitation wheat, it's byproduct, and it's good for one thing, and that's to start a fire with. It's good for burning. And so there is a very clear call for us to believe Jesus, to trust and obey him. And just so we're on the same page, partial obedience in your life and mine is still disobedience. And the root will determine the fruit is basically what John says. So how do you do, how do you do that? How do I do that consistently, meaningfully, authentically, willingly? You can't. I can't. On your own, you can't. You can't live this way on your own. And that's the promise of what John is talking about here. They thought he was the Messiah. He said, oh, no, no, no. One who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The only way that we can live this life of repentance, this life of blessing, is through our choices and the power of the Holy Spirit. This amazing God not only changes your heart, he then gives you the daily power and ability through his Holy Spirit, coupled with your choices to trust and obey, to live a life of blessing and joy and hope, all the things that he promises us. In fact, Jesus models this to us. He models to us the spirit, the spirit-filled life. He does this for us. He empowers us to do it. Man, how does all that work? Come back next week when we look at his baptism and temptation. That's exactly what that's about. But I'd like to leave you with one final story here. And this is a true story. I know this person. And they shared this repentance process with me and I'd like to share it with you. I don't remember how it ever started. I only know that once it began, I didn't know how to make it stop. In those days, my marriage was not going well. We had been only married a short time and although I never thought it would happen, I allowed myself to begin an adulterous relationship with another woman. I'd begun cheating on my wife, my bride. 
the guilt and shame that I felt was overwhelming. I knew that I was actively sinning against my God and my wife, and I remember thinking, I have got to make this stop, but I didn't know how. Weeks stretched into months, and then years. My sin affected everything about me. I was riddled with guilt, racked with fear, covered in shame, and ultimately convinced that neither God nor my wife could ever forgive me. So I stuffed it. In the months that followed, I struggled with anxiety and fear, fear that I'd be found out, fear that I would lose my wife and family. My son even had a physical cost. I was always nauseous. The sick feeling in my body was a weight and a burden that would never go away. I mean, there were times it would fade a little, but inevitably, it always came back. At night, I would lay awake and wonder if I could ever be free. But I would always tell God I could not and I would not confess. I would talk to him, but not my wife. I was completely miserable. One night after my wife and I had gone out for the evening, I again was staring at that same ceiling, and my heart was pounding in my chest. I found it difficult to dream and uh, to breathe, and once again, I was talking with God, and I heard him tell me, we're going to deal with this, that all my efforts to push this away weren't going to work. He told me that I would confess to my wife, and I would do it that very night, and I was terrified. I knew I was living a miserable life in my sin, but I confessed. And through tears, I told her what I had done, and I begged her to forgive me. And then I waited. I waited for her to scream at me and to tell me to get out because I knew that's what was coming, and that, frankly, is what I deserved. And it's not what came. My wife, through tears, asked me if I wanted her. She asked me if I wanted our marriage. I told her that I did want her and our marriage to work more than anything. And my lovely wife, who I had just completely broken to pieces, told me that if I did want her, she would stay with me. She would honor the covenant that we had made on our wedding day. We spent a long, long time in counseling. We worked on ourselves and our relationship. The process was slow and painful, but it was steady, and we both began to heal. And as time went on, so did our marriage. It says in Scripture that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. While it didn't feel good or kind as I wrestled with God, I am overwhelmed with his kindness to me now. In confession and repentance, he has revealed to me more than I could ever imagined about his grace, more than I could ever have dreamed about the cross. At the cross, I ultimately found healing and restoration and grace and acceptance and forgiveness and love and mercy at the beautiful cross of Christ. I found life. Once again, this amazing God offers you and me life through the process of turning away from our sin and turning to him through repentance. So as our worship team comes and as we respond to God's word together and his work in our lives, communion underscores all that we have talked about here this morning. A God who loves us so much that seeing us in our brokenness still loves us, comes to us, offers himself as a sacrifice in our place, rises again to new life and offers us the life that we've always wanted, that we look for in so many other empty things. Morality, religion, trying to be a good person. Man, stop living like that and start living for the God 
who has rescued you from that. So as we prepare to take these elements together, I'm gonna invite the ushers to come forward. And as they do, would you bow your head? And if it'll help you to concentrate, would you, would you close your eyes? God's word also says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is there a part of your life that you know is broken right now? What is that, that sin that you need to name and that you need to own? In this time now between you and the Lord, would you confess that to him? Would you be specific? And would you be honest? Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.